Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. The story of Elijah. It's about his mission as a, as a prophet of God, not to all Israel per se, but primarily to that northern kingdom that by now is beginning to be known by the name of Ephraim, the largest and most dominant tribe of, of the, um, among the northern tribes. Judah, the southern kingdom, is still being ruled by King Asa. The temple priesthood is still intact. The Jerusalem temple is still in operation. And relatively speaking, they're, they're staying true to Jehovah. Now King Ahav and his foreign wife Jezebel, well they rule this northern kingdom of ten tribes and they've led their citizens into idol worship and they've abandoned Jehovah worship. The people are barred from making pilgrimages to Jerusalem. They can't sacrifice at Solomon's temple. They can't join with their brethren to celebrate the God-ordained biblical feasts at appointed times. And since it's the priesthood that's charged with teaching the Hebrew people the ways of God, His Torah, the ten tribes now faint from a lack of knowledge. Instead, the people up north are a captive audience to the blasphemous teachings from the king, from the queen, from the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Yet, there was still a memory of the true God of Israel among the people of the north, and at least scant knowledge of God's word, enough to know that all wasn't right. Because the kings and the false prophets and the, and the prophets of the north insisted on teaching the people wrongly, God went around them and directly to the people. Eliyahu, Elijah. He was the Lord's courageous and tireless messenger bringing both warning and instruction. In 1 Kings 18, we left off last time as Eliyahu stood on a slope of Mount Carmel before a large gathering of clan and tribal leaders, no doubt many elders, and also 450 prophets of Baal. He was making it clear to all president, uh, all present rather, that this last many years of their trying to stand in two camps, the camp of Baal and the camp of Jehovah, was a vain and foolish effort, and that God would suffer it no longer. Choose, said Elijah, choose Baal or choose Jehovah. A test designed to demonstrate to the people that Baal was a sham. The prophets of Baal were scam artists. This test involved two sacrificial bulls that would be offered on two separate sacrificial altars. One of them dedicated to Baal, the other one dedicated to the God of Israel. 
Baal's prophets were allowed to choose which of the bulls they preferred. However, Elijah then issued a challenge. Don't light the altar wood on fire, as you usually do. Call upon Baal to light that fire, supernaturally. Well, the prophets of Baal took up that challenge. And from morning until late afternoon, they danced and they shouted and they jumped up and down and they chanted and they cut themselves with knives and they performed all manner of nonsense. And of course, nothing happened. Earlier in the day, around noon, Elijah began to insult them. He dealt with their fake god with sarcasm. And finally, as the usual time for the evening prayers arrived, he put a stop to this spectacle. And he called the people to now turn their attention from this fraudulent spiritualism consisting only of sound and fury that they had been witnessing to himself. So let's reread a small part of Kings, 1 Kings 18. We're going to start reading at verse 30. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 393. 1 Kings 18, verse 30. Then Eliahu said to all the people, Come here to me. And all the people came up to him as they, he set about repairing the altar of Adonai that had been broken down. And Eliahu took twelve stones in keeping with the number of tribes of the sons of Yaakov. Jacob, to whom the word of Adonai had come, saying, Your name is to be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Adonai, and then he dug a trench around the altar large enough for half a bushel of grain. He arranged the wood, cut up the bull, laid it on the wood, and then he said, Fill four pots with water, pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. They did it. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time, he said. They did it a third time. By now the water was flowing around the altar. It filled the trench. Then when it came time for offering the evening offering, Elijah the prophet approached and said, Adonai, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, Adonai, hear me, so that this people may know that you, Adonai, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back to you. Then the fire of Adonai fell. It consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, Adonai is God. Adonai is God. And Eliyahu said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let one of them escape. And they seized them. And Eliyahu brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and killed them there. Then Elijah said to Ahav, Get up, eat and drink, because I hear the sound of heavy rain. And Ahav went up to eat and drink, while Eliyahu went up to the top of Carmel. He bowed down to the ground and put his face between his knees. And now, he said to his servant, go up and look out towards the sea. And he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing there. Seven times he said, go again. The seventh time, the servant said, now there's a cloud coming up out of the sea, no bigger than a man's hand. And Eliyahu said, go up and say to Ahav, prepare your chariot. Get down the mountain before the rain stops you. A little later, the sky grew black with clouds and wind and heavy rain began falling as Ahav, riding his chariot, made for Jezreel. 
The hand of Adonai was on Eliyahu. He tucked up his clothing and he ran ahead of Ahav to the entrance of Jezreel. Verse 30 has Eliyahu speaking the simplest of truths to the people. A truth that is also an invitation. Come here to me. Come here to me. It's an invitation that God offers His people when they need to repent. And it's also an invitation to become one of His people for those who have never been. Come here to me. The scene on Mount Carmel, accompanied with Elijah's word, first demanding that the people choose, now inviting them to come to me, are reminiscent of a scene ascribed to us by the Apostle John in his book of Revelation. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation are of a vision that John had in which Messiah Yeshua spoke of a message of warning and of instruction to the so-called seven churches of Asia. Now we're going to look at this briefly just for a few verses, and I'm going to tell you up front that the reason I want to do this is because Christians have had a tendency to distance ourselves from these ancient Hebrews we're reading about, to shake our heads in derision and disapproval at their behavior, blind to the reality that at least at this point in history, we are behaving the same way, only in a modern Western culture. Thus, Elijah's warnings and Christ's warning to God's people are essentially the same warning. So turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to read to you from verse 18 to the end. Starting at 18. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, page 1535. To the angel of the Messianic community in Thyatira, write, Here is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like a fiery flame, whose feet are like burnished brass. I know what you're doing. Your love, your trust, service and perseverance, and I know that you're doing more now than before, but I have this against you. You continue to tolerate that Jezebel woman, the one who claims to be a prophet, but is teaching and deceiving my servants to commit sexual sin and to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to turn from her sin. She doesn't want to repent of her immorality, so I am throwing her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great trouble unless they turn from the sins connected with what she does, and I'll strike her children dead. Then all the Messianic communities will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and that I will give to each of you what your deeds deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those who don't hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some people call the deep things of the adversary, 
I say this, I am not loading you up with another burden. Just hold fast to what you have until I come. To him who wins the victory and does what I want until the goal is reached, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them with a staff of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Those who have ears... Let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the Messianic communities. Remembering that Yeshua's entire message in all three beginning chapters of Revelation is only to believers, to you, to us, in whatever spiritual condition we might be. It is parallel to Elijah's message being delivered to the ten northern tribes of God's people in whatever spiritual condition they might happen to be. And notice in Revelation 2.20 the mention of that Jezebel woman who claimed to be a prophet but was leading the people astray into all kinds of sin and immorality. The Jezebel woman in this passage is symbolic of the real historical Jezebel that we've been reading about. Okay? And this Jezebel woman is representative of what I would term the spirit of Jezebel in the same way we speak of the spirit of the Antichrist. Okay? What we need to notice is that this particular congregation of believers in Thyatira is in the midst of divided loyalties. Some believers have one foot in Messiah's camp, the other in Jezebel's. But as verse 24 states, there are also some believers who have held firmly to the Lord and and resisted these false teachings from false prophets. Messiah says in verse 22 and 23 that he is going to throw Jezebel into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great trouble unless they turn from their sins. And if they don't turn from their sins, all the children produced from this adulterous relationship will be struck dead. See, to commit adultery with Jezebel means to enter into an illicit union with her even though one is already in a supposedly exclusive union with Messiah. The children are the result, the bad fruit, if you will, that comes from this hellish union. Messiah says that by throwing Jezebel into the sickbed and destroying her children, this will prove to his followers that not only is he the only one who can search hearts and minds, but also that his followers will receive what their deeds deserve. Christ's words, not mine. Let's take a quick look at Revelation 3. Just a couple of verses. Revelation 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. To the angel of the Messianic community in Laodicea, Right Here is the message from the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know what you're doing. You are neither hot nor cold. How I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. 
Let me repeat. These messages of the first three chapters of Revelation are to believers, not to pretenders, not to the world. And the Lord says, choose. Because right now, you're neither hot nor cold, you're somewhere in the middle. And because of this, He vomits you out of His mouth. Now notice how these two passages of Revelation are but patterns taken from our narrative in Elijah and his war against Baal. The warning to the ancient Hebrews by God through Eliyahu, the same warning made by the same God through Messiah directly to us, His church, is this. You know, we can deceive ourselves to think that we can be in union with sin and with Him at the same time. We cannot add paganism to our worship of God and thereby Christianize it and deem it holy. We can't sit on a fence and say, hey, it's all good. It's all good. Because I'm a believer. I'm okay. You're okay. We'll serve the world for six days. Serve God on the seventh. We can't roll our own personal religion because it suits us. And even though we think we can do these things, God will not accept them. He does not. He has not in any era, time, or dispensation. We deceive ourselves to our peril with such a mindset. Understand, Messiah's message in Revelation is not hypothetical. He is addressing the real church as it is and as He sees it. And a church isn't buildings. It's not places. It's people. It's just an assembly of believers. So we are each individually responsible for our choices. Thus at the end of each letter to a particular church, after a warning, after an instruction, he says this, let those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the congregation. Did you hear? So as we continue with studying about Elijah, picture yourself as among the throngs of people at the foot of Mount Carmel gathered together by God for the purpose of being admonished. Being told you must make a black and white choice. A choice that these people don't want to make. And they had avoided it up until now. In verse 30, the people have their attention turned to a broken down altar formerly used to worship Jehovah. And Elijah is in the process of repairing it so that the remaining bowl then can be placed upon it. This altar must have been quite ancient. It was one of the hundreds that existed throughout the promised land before Solomon's temple was built. 
See, there was a long time after the Israelites first crossed the Jordan under Joshua's leadership that they sacrificed only at the wilderness tabernacle. But as soon as they spread out into their own designated tribal territories, they started building their own family altars. And in time, the tabernacle came into complete ruin. And multiple priestly centers were set up, accompanied with their own altars. It was one of these altars to Adonai that had not been used in ages that Elijah was preparing to use. Elijah gathered 12 stones to represent all 12 tribes of Israel to help rebuild the altar. Notice that he used natural stones. He didn't alter them. Okay? We're even reminded that it was the Lord who changed Jacob's name to Israel. And so the two terms, Jacob and Israel, become interchangeable. Something, by the way, that often confuses Bible students. But this message is put here to remind everyone that all who count their heritage as having come from Jacob is part of Israel. All. And then Eliyahu had this sizable trench dug around the altar. He put wood on the altar, laid the slaughtered bull on top of it. Now no doubt the tension was building after people had been out there all day long They had watched the Baal prophets completely fail in having their altar fire lit supernaturally. So in adding to the drama of this spectacle, Eliyahu orders that water be poured all over the altar, the wood, the bull, and not just a little bit of water, but gallons and gallons. Now, don't be fooled by what on the surface seems obvious, that the wetting of the wood with water would be all the more impressive when God lit that altar fire. Notice, four jugs of water were used. They were emptied and filled on the altar three times. Four times three is twelve. What does the application of water do in the Bible. It cleanses. The symbolism is of the ritual cleansing of all 12 tribes of Israel. The water used was the required living water, Mayim Chaim, as commanded in the Torah for ritual cleansing. And this use of living water was possible since they were right next to the Kishon River. Thus the altar and the bull were purified. But this was done symbolically in the name of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now let me remind you of a really important thing. While blood is for atonement, it does not cleanse from ritual impurity. And while living water cleanses from ritual impurity, it doesn't atone for sins. If one is to be cleansed and forgiven for sins, then the use of living water and blood are both required. This is the reason that we are given the crucial information 
that both blood and water flowed from Yeshua's wounds as He hung on that cross. Messiah told us on numerous occasions that He was living water. That He was also the sacrificial Lamb who came to pay the price of blood atonement for our sins. No greater proof of the truth and literalness of His words could have been offered than what happened at His crucifixion. Now that all the preparations were made, Eliyahu simply looked heavenward and he prayed what was recorded in verse 36. Yehovah Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are Elohim in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Notice that Elijah said, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Not Jacob. Because he was stressing the national aspect of Jacob's twelve sons. He went on to pray in verse 37 that the reason for what these people were observing was to turn the people's hearts back to him. In other words, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the, the, the goal was not God's wrath. That wasn't the goal here. But rather His mercy. God wanted the people to repent so that He could forgive them. So without yelling, dancing, screaming, jumping up and down, any other kind of human participation, fire simply fell from heaven. And not only lit the fire, but it burned up the bull, the wood, and the altar stones themselves. Every drop of water instantly evaporated. Everything simply vaporized and disappeared. Elijah prefaced this awesome display by making it clear that the people needed to understand he was no sorcerer. It was merely by God's word, God ordering it to happen, that it happened. The people fell on their faces. I think most any of us would have done that. And repented. They chose as Elijah had earlier told them to choose. If Jehovah's God, let him be God of Israel. If Baal is God, let him be God of Israel. So the people proclaimed, Yehovah is God. Yehovah is God. Immediately, Elijah ordered the tribal and the clan leaders to seize those 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah led them away, down the slope to the Kishon River, and he had them executed there. <clears throat> Should he have taken that kind of drastic action? Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 5. <clears throat> if there is found among you, within any of your gates, in any city that Adonai your God gives you, a man or a woman who does what Adonai your God sees as wicked, transgressing his covenant, by going and serving other gods and worshiping them, worshiping the sun, the moon, anything in the sky, something I have forbidden, and it is told to you, or you hear about it, then you are to investigate the matter diligently. 
if it's true, if it's confirmed that such detestable things are being done in Israel, then you are to bring the man or woman who has done this wicked thing to your city gates and stone them to death. So the penalty for worshipping other gods is death. And Eliyahu merely carried out God's prescribed Torah penalty. Had any of those Baal prophets joined the other Israelites in repenting, they would have not been harmed. There is no mention, by the way, of any of them doing that. And also notice that it was the teachers, that's who the prophets were, the teachers of the ways of Baal who were executed. Now I've mentioned on numerous occasions that all that speak and teach on behalf of the Lord are held to a higher standard. Verse 21 changes the stone. Uh, rather the tone. Back in verse 1, Jehovah said that he would send rain down onto the land. That's about to happen. But first the people had to repent. And the false teachers and those who led the people into apostasy had to be eliminated. Elijah told Ahav to eat and to drink. The king had no doubt been fasting, as was typical when praying for rain. And Eliyahu told him the rains were coming. So the king ate. Elijah climbed to the summit of Mount Carmel and he bowed down in solemn prayer. He sent his servant, a prophet usually had an assistant with him, to go and look towards the Mediterranean Sea to check and see if there were any clouds coming. Six times the servant went and he reported the skies were clear. But on that seventh time, he said that there was a cloud, but it was very tiny. Elijah told the king to get in his chariot and hurry and get off this mountain. All right, because otherwise the downpour was going to turn the dust to mud and his chariot would get stuck. Ahab didn't hesitate. And within a short time, heavy rain pummeled the area. Now, interesting, Elijah, who was an older man, decided to run in front of Ahab's chariot all the way to an estate in the Jezreel Valley owned by the royal family. The Lord gave Eliyahu supernatural energy to perform what was in essence a great sign of respect for the king. You know, it's kind of fascinating in that much like David did with King Saul, Elijah was, was never ordered, nor did he try to depose King Ahab. He never tried to do this. Rather, he treated with respect the king of Israel, King Ahav, and one wonders if he even really deserved it. The royal estate, though, was about 15 miles from Mount Carmel. Elijah demonstrated that everything that he had done was never a personal attack on King Ahav. It was but he, Elijah, following the Lord's commands obediently at great personal cost that he did all these things. Let's move on to chapter 19. <clears throat> Ahav told Jezebel <clears throat> everything El uh, Elijah had done 
and how he had put all the prophets to the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message, messenger to say to Eliyahu, May the gods do terrible things to me and worse ones beside if by this time tomorrow I haven't taken your life, just as you took theirs. And on seeing that, he got up and fled for his life. And when he arrived in Beersheba, in Judah, he left a servant there, but he himself went a day further into the desert until he came to a broom tree. He sat down under it and he prayed for his own death. Enough, he said. Now Adonai, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the broom tree and he went to sleep. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up, eat. He looked and there by his head was a cake baked on the hot stones and a jug of water. He ate, he drank, and then he lay down again. The angel came again a second time and touched him and said, Get up, eat, or the journey will be too much for you. He got up, he ate, and he drank. And on the strength of that meal, he traveled for 40 days and nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. We'll stop there, and I'm gonna, we'll uh, pick this up next week. But when, when Ahav arrived at that family estate, he went in to tell his wife, Jezebel, of all the miraculous things that he had witnessed. How all of Jezebel's prophets of Baal were dead at Elijah's order. Let's just say that after hearing his account of Mount Carmel, Jezebel wasn't as impressed as was her husband. Her response was to send a threat to Elijah. Tomorrow by this time you're a dead man. And as serious as Jezebel was, such that she actually made an oath to seal her threat that invoked the names of her gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, on the other hand, you know it's obvious, her intent wasn't to kill Elijah. It was to get him to leave. If she actually wanted to kill him, the last thing she'd do is send a messenger to, uh, to him announcing her intention. No, his going away better suited this situation. There were now many clan and tribal chiefs who, due to Elijah's faithfulness at Carmel, had renounced Baal and they were resuming their worship of Jehovah. Elijah was more popular than ever among the people. So it would have been political suicide for Jezebel and Ahav to now have Elijah executed. Well, anyway, the threat worked and Eliyahu fled. And he took a servant with him. He traveled far south from Carmel into the kingdom of Judah. Then he went as far south as Judah extended to Beersheba. It would be safe there. But he determined to go even further into the desert. And so he left his servant in Beersheba to go it alone. Elijah was despondent. He was depressed, exhausted, afraid full of doubts, unsure of his future role as a prophet of Jehovah. Historically, there are two positions taken by Bible scholars on the meaning of the statement in verse 3. That when Elijah got the king, queen's message, he fled for his life. 
The most accepted is that he fled to avoid being killed. He essentially felt so threatened, he abandoned the mission field that was his assignment from God, and he went into isolation. We find nothing that would imply that the Lord told Elijah to leave and go to the south. He did it on his own. A few Bible scholars, most notably C.F. Keel, argue that while he used to accept that rationale, he's changed his mind. Keel says Elijah went to find solitude, that he might pour out his life before God, because it seemed as though his mission was over. Elijah had arrived at a point that he felt everything was at a dead end. He had fearlessly confounded hundreds of enemy prophets at Mount Carmel, confronted a king who wanted him dead, had so much faith in the Lord that he spent a year or more depending on wild ravens to bring him morsels of food as his only sustenance, and demonstrated such unswerving trust in the limitless power and authority of Jehovah that he confidently prayed over a dead Gentile boy and the Lord resurrected that life. No doubt he must have felt that the Mount Carmel miracle would now lead to a drastic reshaping and restoration of Israel and change of heart by King Ahav and by Jezebel. Now he could for a time rest and bask in God's glory as Israel began a sharp turnaround. But nothing like that happened. Instead, he was threatened with his life and chased not just out of town, but out of the entire northern kingdom. How else could he have felt but that somehow he had failed He was so convinced that God must be done with him that he begged God to take his life. He wandered in the desert until he found a retama tree, today known as a Spanish broom tree. And he laid himself down in his meager shade. It's enough, he cried to the Lord. It's enough. And he acknowledged he was no better. He was no different, really, than his ancestors. He was physically, spiritually, emotionally spent. And he would rather die at Jehovah's hand than to be killed by that evil Jezebel because that would seem like an even greater tragedy. Was the incomparable Eliyahu having a massive pity party? In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. His problem was that according to his earthly eyes and his carnal mind, he had failed. What good had all these years in hiding, his denial of self, any kind of a normal life, and the great risk of taking on the the king and this wicked queen and their, their pagan minions. What good had all this accomplished? All he had intended and dreamed for and worked for was now a wreck. Every pastor and Bible teacher 
implores his charges to see things as God sees them. Yet in the end, we're not God. It's only with the greatest effort that we can set aside all the customary earthly measurements of success, the same ones that others use to measure us, and leave it entirely in God's hands. We are, after all, humans. Even Yeshua, and a show of His humanness, alone, trembling in stress and anxiety, asked the Father if there was any way to avoid this torturous punishment and death that he foreknew was but, he was but hours away from suffering. Let me be candid with you. At some time or another, nearly everyone who serves the Lord on a near full-time basis finds themselves tired and discouraged. Depending on their role, one can get physically and mentally worn down from the demands that few people even know about. Find that great changes they had hoped for would come from their commitment to a church project or a goal. It's never materialized. They looked around and saw that suddenly their children were grown. They had missed much of those wonderful times that could never be recovered. So laser focused were they on their assignment. And for pastors, after years of dedicating every waking hour to their flock, their flock tired of them. They wanted a new shepherd. This is why within the institutional church the concept of a sabbatical was born. To give these dedicated men and women some time to spend in solitude with the Lord to pursue something that there was simply no time to do otherwise, to get reacquainted with their families, to get a fresh spiritual perspective and simply to rest. Is that self-pity? Yeah, to a degree. I must confess that it is, but it's not something that I or probably most any other Christian leader or layman would find unreasonable or let alone condemn somebody for it. Because in the end, God's earthly leaders and teachers are just people. They're just like the ones being served. Flawed, fragile, full of emotions, full of needs, full of imperfections. See, I have the greatest sympathy for Elijah. I can't fault him. And I think the Lord's response to Eliyahu's decision to run away from his mission field shows us how the Divine Father both mercifully understands our humanity but he also righteously cannot simply overlook such a decision from those he has given such great gifts and responsibility to. We're going to continue with chapter 19 next time.